the question that he put to me was, what would these guys do if you had stayed? Well, they would have quit working mm -hmm. because I was there. They, they wouldn't have to do it because they could depend on me. And so then God, at that point, I got real peace about it that that's what God had intended. For 2,000 years, Christ has been extending His kingdom through ordinary, faithful people. Their blood, sweat, and tears are the seeds of the global church. The gospel is spreading across the world, saving sinners, renewing nations, and changing everything. But today, many in the modern church are weak, torn, comfortable. The book of Hebrews says we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses watching us from heaven, spurring us on. The stories of these faithful Christ followers who've gone before us are what we need to wake up and return to our first love for Christ's mission. Let's learn from them. Welcome to Cloud of Witnesses. This is the finale of our first season, episode 10. If you've been with us on this journey, we're so glad you're here. And in this episode, this final episode of our first season, don't worry, there's more to come. We hear from ABWE missionaries Bill and Debbie Tobias, who continue sharing their story of serving in Papua New Guinea for 30 years. Now, this is the second in a two-part series. If you missed part one, go back in your feed and listen to the first part of this conversation. In that last episode, we learned about their beginnings serving in PNG and their ministry to the people of the Simbai region. And as the last episode came to a close, the Tobiases were in the process of moving their family from Garoka to Simbai, which included chartering barges and transporting their goods in a less than trustworthy truck that broke down 14 times, which almost led to the end of their mission in Simbai altogether. Well, let's return to their story. Here's what Bill has to say. Yeah, I wanted to share a couple other stories about the, I mentioned the Ioma and the truck breaking down 14 times. So it's uh, only fitting to tell you the, about the day I quit. It's in Ioma during that two weeks, that two week period of time when I had all these breakdowns with the truck. And just got so frustrated and uh, one day I just decided to quit. It was about three, four o'clock in the afternoon. It was probably about four o'clock in the afternoon. And I just, dropped everything where I was and walked over to the airport and said, I'm gonna get on a plane and get out of here. But you have to understand that where I was in Iome in uh, this time of the year, it's rainy season and the airplanes fly in the morning. There's, there's very seldom any planes in the afternoon. And I knew there probably wasn't gonna be a plane coming and I wasn't gonna get a ride out of there, but I went over late, sat at the airport. And sometimes when you're just tired and white, you just need some rest. So I laid down on the grass and I laid there for about an hour. It was nice and cool. A little bit in the afternoon, I found a shady spot, but that was, that was the day I quit. About five o'clock, you know, there were no planes coming. I might as well go back to work. Well, building the mission base in Simbai took a village. And the Tobiases leaned on the help of not only the local village, but also groups from the United States. The Lord used these short-term trips not to only aid in the building of the mission base, but also to aid in the heart change for some to serve in overseas missions themselves. When we were in a building process of building all these buildings and building this mission base in Senbai, there was no way I could personally do all that work. And even with all the nationals, 
So we recruited volunteer teams to come and help us from America. So as our first phase of the building construction, we had 16 teams that came and we did a second phase later, we had about, we had four more teams. So that first 16 teams that came, there was 80 different volunteers who came uh, to the field to help with those building projects. It was about 20 more. So around a hundred volunteers who came out altogether. We pulled up the statistics on the, the first 80 people that came. Eight of those people made full-time decisions, life-changing decisions. Uh, one of them was actually Rob Wagner, Rob and Amy Wagner. Rob was on the very first team. He was obviously knew he was a very good builder. He knew how to be a to boss the crew and work at the same time. I can work or I can boss, but I had a hard time bossing and working. Mm -hmm. But Rob was very proficient at that. Found out he had been a working foreman on a five-man team before he became a building inspector at his job back home. And we actually recruited Rob to come back as the project manager. So he and Amy and their kids came out for a short term. And then, well, he came back, he came back, they came out for, uh, I forget, two years. Yeah. So after, for two years. And then, and they then they came back, they went back home and they went, joined ABW and came back full time and served. But out of those other eight, those other eight people that made life-changing decisions, there were others then who, who made other decisions, but one guy was uh, had been married to a Vietnamese lady, and he came back to America, and uh, he and his wife actually joined ABWE and went to Vietnam as missionaries with ABWE. So it how was, God used all these you know, people. It was a lot of a lot of different kinds of decisions that were made. People that they were all pretty all of them were Christians, but they hadn't been baptized. They didn't see the sense of being baptized. They went home and got baptized. Some of them were baptized and they weren't members of their church. And so they went home and did that. And then they got involved in their church. And, and that was really neat. They saw the importance of that. So imagine living in a remote region of Papua New Guinea, where having the aid of a truck to haul materials increases your ability to transport goods and supplies throughout the region especially when your mission is to build a mission base in that area. It'd be a game changer. However, in the case of the Tobias's vehicle, it also led to some very close calls. You know, if it's anything that has to be done, you have to do it. There's times where you have to be very creative and figure out how to do things. In a truck. Uh, with the truck, yeah. Like when you have no brakes on the truck, or brakes that aren't that are not good enough to slow you down enough to change gears or to stop you, then you have to know where the bank is. So as you wind it up the mountain on the road, all right, which way is the bank? If they, if you lose if you lose the gear, so you only stop at the bottom of the hill or at the very top of the hill. You can't stop in the middle if the brakes don't work. But if you're when the, if it's just the brakes, it's not a bad problem. But then when the transmission started jumping out of gear, now that's a problem because you, now you have no transmission to hold it. So there are several marks in the, in the, on the mountains and bo both sides of the mountain, all sides of the mountains in Senbai where the truck, we either drove it into the ditch frontwards or in, coasted in backwards to a ditch and to stop We didn't it. have communication and it may have been a good thing. If I had known all this, I probably would have gone crazy, you know, worrying about I, he'd tell me about it when he'd come back. So then when he was gonna go again with the truck, I'd get a horrendous stomach ache because I was so nervous and worrying about what was gonna happen. Well, then one day I headed down the road with the truck. She knew I was leaving. And then you have to tell him about the, when the, the truck broke down and the message you got. Oh yeah, the truck broke down and I got the message that he was dead. He was killed he went down over the side of the mountain. And then they came and told me they were bringing, bringing his body into the 
clinic, and so I walked down there. On the ambulance. Uh, and yeah, they were bringing it in an ambulance because they did have an ambulance. So I walked down all the way down the mountain to where the clinic was, and he wasn't there yet. And then the ambulance came in and they pulled out an old lady. I said, well, where's Bill? He's supposed to be dead, where, where is Bill? Oh, he's up at the house, we dropped him off at the house. So I walked all the way back up to the house and he's in the backyard washing his hands in the sink and I said, you're supposed to be dead. I went down to get your body. <laughs> that was one time, well, there was two times that I was told he, he was the mount, the truck went over the mountain and he was dead. Well, it turned about fair play because one time I was in Simbai, had gone up for the five day week. And, and uh, I was in Garoka. She was in Garoka. I think Mandy was the only child Mandy at home. Mandy was. She was yeah. the only one at home at that point. Uh, the other two girls had gone off to college. I'd been in the village and would hike up to Yomaki, all the way up that four hour hike up to Yomaki. Well, then I'd catch the plane on Friday to come back home when I set up ahead of time to planes coming back to get me on Friday. And so I would hike back out from Yomaki back to to Mumbai, which is now only an hour hike. So I had a short hike in the morning to get to the airport. So I got to Mumbai that afternoon, about four o'clock the afternoon on Thursday. And the, one of the pastors came over and he had his head dropped right down really bad. He's really sad. And he said he was so hard, sorry to hear about my bad news. And I said, well, I don't know what you're talking about. What bad news? He said, well, your wife, she, she's dead. Well, in Pigeon, they took the word is to die, D-A-I. That means you can die. Well, the die has multiple meanings because Pigeon is a limited language. So you can pass out, you can faint. Sleep. You can be laying down. You could be asleep or, but if you die finis, that's dead, okay? And so I said, well, can you find out some more information? So a message had come by radio and this, this is like the grapevine now. So you have to understand where the message is. It's just like a grapevine, but when mm. things come by radio, it can get really mixed up. So I sent the guy back to the station. I'm staying at Mumbai and, and uh, guy went back to the station. He comes back at 6.30. So I've gotten, gone to the river and got showered and they fixed me food. And it's like six o'clock now it's dark. And he came back at about 6.30. So I, I was just in the house, just sitting there waiting. And he comes back and he said, well, the message is that it was, it's your, your wife is dead and her body is in the morgue. Now he's telling me this in Pigeon. And well, I, so in Pigeon, Mary is your wife, but picking any Mary is your daughter. So I said, okay, is, is it my wife, Mary belong me, or picking any Mary? Is it my wife or my daughter? And he couldn't tell me if it was my wife or my daughter, but he was sure that her body was dead and in the morgue. And, and the plane is gonna come and get me tomorrow. That's the other part of the message. Well, I already knew that because I'd set that up with the pilot you know, before I went in. He's coming to get me tomorrow. The next morning when the plane landed, my daughter was on the plane. So at that point, I knew, I knew that it was, whatever happened happened to my wife, because my daughter's here, she's fine. She's not, her body's not anymore. And Mandy said, oh, no, she's not dead, but she did have a, a, gall, a gallstone, gall a gallbladder attack, a gallstone. Gall They've flown her to Australia, and you have a flight to Australia this afternoon, but you're going home to get a shower first. <laughs> and so well, when, and when they told me that they had, what, of course, I'm in pain and misery, and the men come in and are, are getting an update and then telling me, well, we sent a radio message up to him, and I went, oh, no, you shouldn't have done that. That's not good. <laughs> so your radio, radio messages you have to sometimes take It's like take playing with telephone. And again, God is faithful. God is gracious. And, and my stone passed on the way to um, Australia. 
So I went there anyway, and they did all kinds of tests, and that was it. We came home on furlough, and he, t he says, I'm taking that gallbladder out. You're not going back there with a gallbladder. That's what, that's what our doctor says. <laughs> in America. <laughs> well, in the day and age we live in now, preparing yourself to move to the ends of the earth would likely be a process accompanied by documented multimedia content about the region, preparing you for what to expect. Internet resources, all sorts of research to guide you in your decision. But 40 years ago, the adjustment to life overseas for Debbie came without any of those resources. Debbie shares a glimpse into life in the Simbai region. When I was 12 and I gave my heart to the Lord to be a missionary, I did not have a clue what a missionary was. I had no idea what I would do or where, I, and I certainly did not figure this city girl would end up at the ends of the earth and 25 miles up the mountain. Our people uh, in Simbai uh, were um, rather primitive. They lived in grass huts. They carried bows and arrows and machetes. So it was very different than any place I had been or where we had ever gone. But going from the city up to the Simbai, Bill took me out of the city by small increments, which was a good thing because when we got up there, it just was totally different. We had no fast food restaurants. We had no restaurants for that matter up in Simbai. We had no grocery stores. We had no electricity when we first went. We had no radio, had no TV. If I wanted to find out how Ohio State played their game, I had to wait till Monday morning and get on the HF radio and find VOA, which is Voice of America, and listen until they gave the football scores. Now that's a true Buckeye. <laughs> We did. We had to catch our rainwater. When we did get a, a generator, I had to schedule my day according to when we would have electricity. And that could be from nine in the morning or sometimes eight in the morning till noon and from five or six o'clock till nine o'clock at night. So if I was going to make a cake for supper, I had to start it in the, I had to do it in the morning. Laundry, definitely done in the mornings. Run the vacuum cleaner, which yes, I took a vacuum cleaner with me. I had to do it in the mornings. So that was quite a thing. Now, when we first moved up there, we lived in a little house. I think we talked about uh, the size of a two car garage. And first of all, we had to pump the water from the little tiny water tank up to the roof. And uh, finally, I got smart and paid one of the boys to do it, a little, one of the little kids to do it. So that was, that was good. But we didn't have hot water in the house. It was only cold water. Going to the villages, and we worked with several villages that were quite a ways out of the uh, Simbai station where we were. We had to go on in a four-wheel a four-wheeler. I had never ridden on a four-wheeler, much less driven one, until I was about 50 years old, and then I had to learn how to drive. And we had a couple of them, and then I had my Kawasaki Mule, which the ladies of the state of Ohio got for me, and, and that was wonderful. It even had a dump bed on the back. So we'd go to the river and fill full stones when Bill or whoever was doing anything, and then I'd 
take it up to the property and we dump it and then we go back. And sometimes I hauled uh, sand and gravel. Uh, I hauled a cow once all cut up and I also hauled a, um, a live pig. They had uh, tied it to a, a stick and set set it right behind me and so every time we hit a bump that thing squealed and scared me to death but um, he didn't get loose and we got him to wherever he needed to go we we caught our rainwater in big tubs we have copper roofs on our houses our tin roofs or and um, the water would run down through the gutters and into the tanks. So that's how we got our, our rainwater. And Bill fixed it to where the tanks were up on the hill so they gravity fed. So we had water all the time. Whereas in town, if the electricity went off, you didn't have any water. So we were uh, spoiled that way where we had water whenever we wanted it. We didn't have telephones. We didn't have internet. We never had internet. And we never had phones until the last year we were there. We had a generator for several years. And eventually, uh, we learned about these, these big uh, battery banks that we could get. So we would get those and we would charge them at night. And then in the afternoons, we would have uh, battery power. Now, depending on what you did with them would depend on how long they lasted. I couldn't use several different things at the same time or even one by one because it used up the electricity. And of course, I had my stereo, I had to have a stereo, I had to have music. So we had CDs and uh, we collected them when we were home. And when we built the house, the one thing I asked them for is uh, speakers in every room. So it was really nice because you walk through the house and the music followed you. That was a really good perk. <laughs> um, we had no grocery stores. We had to go out to town to get our, our groceries and the flights kept costing more and more, it seemed like every time we went out. We didn't go out to town to get our supplies, but about once every three or four months. Now we didn't drive, we didn't have a car. They didn't have any roads to get to town. So we had to fly on a small Cessna 206 uh, and that you had six seats in it. And um, so when we went to the grocery store, when we fly out and we go to the grocery store, I buy um, gro groceries for about three or four months because we wouldn't be back. Now what I had to do then was I had to separate them into at least two groups. One that will go home with us and one that will come later because sometimes we couldn't get all of our groceries in the plane at one time. And so I had to pack the um, groceries to where the glass jars wouldn't break, the eggs would be fine, and just pack them and then I had to close them up and then I had to weigh them. So I had to keep a running track of which box weighed what because I was limited in what I could put in because Bill had building supplies too. And so um, we had to do that. And that was, that took at least a half a day to get things packed and sorted out and packed and, and weighed. And we went home on furlough one time and Bill and the girls and I, we all went to the grocery store and we had a a fight argument right there in the aisle, the grocery over pancake syrup, because um, there were so many choices. I just wasn't used to that. The first time I went, when we came home on furlough, I walked in the store and I looked at my list and I looked at the store and I just couldn't deal with it. I cried and turned around and walked out. Um, it was a super store. So I didn't even know where the grocery department was. So the next time when I went to grocery store, 
I went to a grocery store and that's all they had. And that was much easier, but it's very intimidating because there's just so many choices, so many choices. And when we would come home and since we went home to stay, you go to the store and you find one of you, what you want to buy. And I want to hoard it because we go into the store in Garoka and oh, they've got uh, tomato paste this, this, this time. So you buy several cans and a couple more. Uh, and then, because next time you go back, they may not have it and they may not have it for a long time. And then I don't go back for two or three months. So that would take a long time. As the Tobiases were nearing the end of their time serving in Papua New Guinea and training up the nationals to continue the ministry in their absence, they experienced an unexpected tragedy in their family that would require the mission transition to be put on hold. In 2015, we were actually in Australia, went down to Australia for a conference, and then tragedy struck our family. Uh, our oldest daughter, who was just shy of her 40th birthday, they had adopted a young boy, Noah. He was three and a half years old at the time. On March the 12th of 2015, he went out on a frozen pond and fell in, and Marisa went in to get him out, and they both drowned. So that was a, they were able to contact us. They contacted us early in the morning. Uh, it was actually, we were in Sydney, Australia. They contacted us at seven, seven or 7.30 that morning and said that there had been an accident, that they had found Marisa and Noah in the pond. And that was all we knew, but we needed to go home. Long story short, 27 hours later, we were from from the time we got the message. We were sitting in our house here in Columbus, Ohio, and it's a twenty. It's twenty one hours, twenty two hours worth of flying time. And when we bought the tickets, the lady said this. Whatever time it was, she said, "Can you get?" To the, we were an hour from the airport. She said, "Can you get here by eleven thirty to check in for your two thirty flight?" We said, "We can," but we God had us back here in twenty seven hours. Hardest flight we ever made. Yeah. Without any information or knowing. So the hardest thing that we that that we faced in our in our lives was the loss for our our daughter and grandson. And so we wound up being home for two years before we were able to get back to the field. And uh, the mission the mission did not put any pressure on us to go. At the viewing and the funeral, six of my pastors showed up. Every one of them asked me, "When are you going back?" I said, "I have no idea." And that was the answer they wanted to hear because they said, we don't want, they didn't tell me that till later, but the idea was, we don't want you going back to the field before you're ready. And so it became a family affair. We had bought round trip tickets to go come home and go back a year later. And our youngest daughter said, no, that's not gonna happen, Dad. <laughs> not your decision anymore. And we said, well, we understand what you're saying. And she said, well, you have to include the family now. So that became our a family prayer request that God would not only prepare us to go back, but, them. but to prepare our kids and our grandkids for us to go back. And so God didn't allow that to happen until 2017. And so we went back in 2017 knowing that we're going to wrap up at the end of the year. And we had been telling our guys, we told them in 2015 and 2014 that when we leave, we're going to leave probably at the end of 2017. We'll have been here 30 years in country. We just want you to know we're going. And that's our, that's our goal is to, we're going to be old enough. It's really hard living in bush and all the logistics and the stresses and strains took a real toll on our bodies physically. Uh, the rugged mountains, the hiking, the logging, the milling timber building buildings. And so we told them that we'd go home. So as when we got back in 2017, these guys were busy doing the work. And 
man, I really wanted to stay. And, <laughs> and it was like, but our kids said, we will let you go back, but you have to come home at the end of the year. You cannot stay, Dad. We know you, we know you're going to stay, but you can't stay. You have to come home. That's the only, that's the only, if you agree to that, that's the only way we're going to agree to let you go back. So that was the contract verbal we made with our kids that we would come home. But I really wanted to stay because these guys are doing what I've been trying to tell them for 30 years to do. And I wanted to stay and help them. And it wasn't until a year later that God impressed upon me that, that he, I, I didn't hear God say it, and I, uh, but the question that he put to me was, what would these guys do if you had stayed? Well, they would have quit working mm-hmm. because I was there. They, they wouldn't have to do it because they could depend on me. And so then God, at that point, I got real peace about it that that's what God had intended. Serving in Papua New Guinea, especially in the remote region of Simbai, you need to be equipped with not only biblical knowledge and a desire to reach the lost, you also need to be equipped with practical skills for a wide variety of projects. Bill took the experiences he learned serving in Papua New Guinea elsewhere in ministry. You stop and think about it and you think, what is a missionary? Well, the first thing you think about, he's a preacher or he's a teacher or especially he's a doctor or nurse. All right, those, are, those are missionaries. A pilot. A pilot, yeah. And so you don't think about people who are mechanics and carpenters and electricians and plumbers. And so the burden that I got with all these volunteers coming was that there are so many missionaries who want mission fields who have projects going on that need help. And I just felt that God was burdening my heart that when we left PNG, as long as my health and strength were good, I would like to be a part of a part of a, what is now Go Construction and, and be a part of a team where I can go and help other missionaries on other fields. And so God has allowed me to do that. So the first project we did after we joined the Go Construction was in January 2019, went down to Florida and helped put a metal roof on a church building that had been damaged by a hurricane. Uh, so that was my introduction to, to, to the first job. So I've been to Togo twice. I've been to, to Papua New Guinea twice on work teams. Uh, we had in 2020, we actually was in, in Togo from February of 2020, had two more trips planned that year, but COVID hit. So all the all that ended. Uh, but God has now opened the door. Uh, just finished a trip to Romania the month of July. It's gone for three weeks in Romania with a, with a project building building for the guys there. And the Lord has opened the door for me to go back to Togo for three weeks to help with the projects at the HBD hospital, our southern hospital in Togo. So just excited and doing what I, I, what I love doing is, is help is building. And the model for our, our uh, construction office is that we're carrying out the Great Commission through the proper planning and construction of ministry related facilities around the world. And so as we go and we build, we're not just building buildings, we're building for eternity. Uh, the buildings are just the tools. I'm I'm the one who can use the tools to build the buildings. All right? So I'm a tool in God's hand using the skills that he's given me to build a building that the doctors and nurses can use or the teachers and faculty can, can be involved in and sharing the gospel. And some of the stories that, you know, from like the Hospital of Hope up in Northern Togo, when I was there in 2019, four years ago, they only had been open five years and had already seen 55,000 patients. This past summer, nine years on, they've seen their 100,000 patients, and every person has heard the gospel. And so that's what, it's, it's about reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so uh, buildings are a necessary part of that. 
uh, in many cases, not always, but in many cases they are. So I'm helping with the buildings. And so I'm just blessed of God uh, with the health and strength that he's provided and being able to do what I really like doing, uh, which is helping others build buildings. Through trials and victories, the Tobiases faithfully served the Lord in Papua New Guinea for 30 years. And Bill continues to serve with ABWE Go in its construction program in aiding projects around the world. Bill and Debbie are an example to us all that God uses each and every one of us. And he uses us with the talents and gifts that he has specifically assigned to each one of us. For Bill, that included construction and equipping pastors. For Debbie, that was teaching literacy to nationals and serving those God put in her life with compassion. So as we reach the end of this first season of Cloud of Witnesses, we thank you for joining us. We want you to recognize that for every single one of us who've put our faith in Christ, God wants to use us where we are to reach those around us. He's equipped us with unique gifts and talents and passions for this very purpose, to disciple the nations, to love and serve him, and to share the hope of Jesus Christ with our neighbors. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please go ahead and leave us a positive rating and review in your podcast platform of choice. Share it with a friend. Podcasts like these grow by word of mouth. We're not marketing this in a big and extravagant way, but we're hoping that the Lord uses these simple stories of ordinary believers doing ordinary and extraordinary things for the kingdom to build up his flock, to mobilize and equip people for mission. We thank you for being on this journey with us. And we hope to see you again soon on Cloud of Witnesses. Cloud of Witnesses is a production of ABWE. I'm your host, Alex Kochman. Our production director is Grant Boring. Our researcher and interviewer is Jay York. Production support is provided by Brian Van Timmeren. Additional voiceovers by Jason Younger. Get equipped to make disciples and learn how you can reach the nations at abwe.org. Cloud of Witnesses is a production of ABWE. ABWE is a global family of ministries reaching more than 80 countries by sharing Christ, planting churches, and training Christian leaders. After nearly 100 years, ABWE is continuing to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. You can help us advance the kingdom for the next 100 years and beyond by supporting the mission through the Global Gospel Fund. Learn more at abwe.org forward slash cloud.